Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast, Emily Yale and Chris Bukavich. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. Now, Emily and Chris, you were both co-presenters of Session 20 at Blue Hat for those playing along at home with the schedule, unmasking Azure-based adversaries or adversaries, depending on your pronunciation. And a little behind the scenes is that I think you two sort of win the prize at Blue Hat October 23 for having the session move the most times in the schedule and being converted from a 15-minute lightning talk to a 45-minute breakout session and then back to a lightning talk and then change days and moved around. So first of all, thank you so much for your flexibility. I certainly appreciate it from the team that put on Blue Hat. But also thank you for presenting this great content. Before we jump into that, we always like to ask some introductions. We'll start with you, Emily, if you could just sort of tell us who you are, what you do at Microsoft, and maybe what your day-to-day looks like. Sure, yeah. So I'm a senior data scientist here on the detection analytics team in digital security and resilience org here at Microsoft. So that's basically Microsoft internal security. So what I do is help take the SOX ideas for detections or come up with new ideas for detections that we can build that both expand our coverage of what we can see from that blue team perspective, as well as add depth and better fidelity to existing detections that we already have. So my day-to-day usually involves a lot of programming. We use Azure Synapse here on the team. So It's PySpark code that I'm writing pretty much day to day on a super literal perspective. My background is I came from F5 Networks and the MITRE Corporation prior to coming over here to Microsoft. And so I've been working in the intersection of data science and cybersecurity for over seven years now. And before I was working, I got a PhD in math from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So obviously, all of the data science-y things has been a great fit. And I love the cybersecurity field specifically. Impressive. Thank you, Emily and Chris. Yeah, and I'm Chris McCabbage. I'm on our hunt team here. So we monitor the corporate security network. We have a ton of great friends here. Emily's one of them that we work with for some of the data science projects that we have. But my main role right now is kind of a incident responder investigator. So big breach happens at Microsoft. Usually we're one of the teams that will get called in to kind of go investigate what happened. And A little bit more specific of what I do is I work a little bit more on the detection side and automating all the different tools that we have at Microsoft. We have so many different tools and bringing those all together under one platform. How can we query across Sentinel, Kusto clusters, M365D, a lot of that stuff in one cohesive area is one of the main projects that I work on here. So sounds like the two of you work in two separate areas, but you came together for this presentation. How did that happen? How did the connection and go, hey, this will be great. Let's go make presentations, submit this for Blue Hat. Tell us how that journey happened. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So thanks in large part to my manager and Chris's manager for actually chatting together and thinking like, oh, we have a really good idea across these two teams that we could go talk about. And from my perspective, it's a perfect fit because Chris can answer all of the questions about service principles, which was a big focus of our talk. And he can explain what they are and how they work and why they're difficult to monitor. And then I can just talk about the data science side of things, which is my actual area of expertise. And when we put those things together, the audience gets the context of what's going on, as well as this cool detection thing that we did on top of that. Does your everyday, your day-to-day role, do you intersect at all naturally, or is this specific just for this presentation? Yeah, so we interact with Emily's team here a lot when, say, we're working on and trying to improve something. And on our team, we make a lot of more static detections how do we kind of join these things? But when that needs a little bit more behavioral analysis and look at it, Emily and their team here, they focus just on data science problems usually. So their bread and butter is this pretty much every day. I'm a little bit more like, how does this work? Investigate what happened. I have to go contain it, remediate it, stop the bad guy from spreading. So we worked really here to kind of start addressing some things that we were seeing like, hey, we need to really focus on surface principles a lot more This is a new growing area that attackers are targeting. So we are focusing on trying to work together a lot more in the future here after some of these difficult challenges. Yeah, I think Chris highlighted exactly kind of like how our team views this, which is they have the insight to know, like, this is what I looked for in the logs. This is what I saw that I knew was unusual. And what we want to do is generalize that so that it's not specific to something unique that they found. We want to apply these other techniques so that we can build something that's durable and kind of forward looking for some of those issues that they've identified. Awesome. I think that's a great segue then into sort of the bread and butter here of the session you presented. Maybe Emily, I'll start with you or Chris, if it makes more sense, feel free to change that. But the session was called Unmarking Azure-Based Adversaries. I usually pick apart the title. I'm not going to do that right now. I'd love for you guys to just sort of give us a quick overview of the abstract. What was it that you talked about in this session? And then I might come back to some of my questions that are a bit more related to the title. Yeah, so I can take that, I guess. (laughs) So we started off with Chris providing a primer on like what are service principles in the environment. So they're kind of like a new concept that have evolved from like service accounts. And so he highlighted what would be the challenge of monitoring service principles in your environment? Well, there's a lot of things going on with permissions and activity can show up in a lot of different areas. And it may not be straightforward to map all of those things out and get a clear kind of single pane view of what's going on with those types of identities. So he laid the groundwork for that. And then we talked about a project that my team had worked on with a specific data source looking at service principles that helped identify unusual and potentially malicious behavior by applying some data science techniques to that data and looking at some specific features from it. Chris, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think the main thing is really, we talked about really everything from how does a bad guy know that, hey, this service principle is one that I want to go after. So what do they really do? How do we investigate them, remediate them? And Emily did a great job explaining some of the detection work that we're doing here. But really, that's the gist of it. Service principles are definitely a area that not too many folks know a lot about. And essentially, they're the backbone of pretty much all your different Azure services, how authentication works across different things. So 
If you're not familiar with the kind of concepts of service principles, they're definitely great to go a little bit further into and understand. Let's do that. So I think that I was familiar with the terms sort of machine identities or non-human identities. I'd sort of learned about that. But service principles or service principle accounts, I must admit, I didn't know that that's what that was. So could you talk a little bit more about, you know, maybe a refresher of what is a machine identity or what is a non-human identity? And then are they exactly the same as service principles or service principle accounts? Are they different? What's the difference? When would you use one term versus the other? I don't know who to ask that question to. Maybe Chris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you kind of look at like, we'll take a step back. If you look at the kind of history of service accounts and say you just want to go automate a thing, right? Like I want to go have an account. I want to go set this up to go run something on a schedule. We used to do that back in the day. It may be an account. It may be a local account or something like that, right? You have that on a box. It's running. Service principles, now in Azure, it's this new concept that basically you have this identity. It could be tied with a app registration or it could be tied with in the kind of Azure subscription layer where there's a user assigned or there is a managed identity that's system level. So that's tied to one resource. Or the user side is tied to multiple different resources. So the abstract of what a service principle is, is it has two main pieces. It can be tied to resources, or it can be used for users to authenticate into them. So it's not like a traditional user account where you had this thing just scheduled and run it's a little more complicated in Azure. So people can authenticate against it as like, say, you have your website, Microsoft.com, you log into it. You're logging in what's actually on one side of it, service principles. So you're signing into that as the enterprise app in your environment, or you can use the service principles to go schedule things to go run in your environment. And you have permissions to them and all these different things. So it's a little more complicated than traditional service accounts that you had on-prem. So when you're looking for bad actors that are targeting certain of these service principles. What are you looking for? What's a tip? How do they choose what one they want to, you know, obviously we don't want to give away all the secret sauce, but is there something like that you can give us some insight on? Like, what are you looking for? And then what are you thinking? Like, okay, they're targeting this, this, and this, and this. Give us a little bit of insight into that if you don't mind. Sure. So one of the things that we had from experience was, you know, actors... They don't know what they have until they start playing with it. And we could see from what a service principle might look like normally. Again, you have to kind of think about a service principle has two purposes. People might be logging into that, say like a website, to authenticate into it, or it's going to be for scheduling stuff. So from scheduling stuff side, we've seen the service principle identity, we'll say it just tries to access tons and tons of key vaults, or it's trying to access a ton of different other service principles and signing into those other apps. So if we see suddenly, hey, there's a huge spike, this service principle has been dormant for automation purposes. It's been dormant, hasn't been doing anything the last couple of months. And now it's suddenly signed into a thousand different applications in your environment. That's pretty unusual. So we've seen abuse that like the actors, they're going to do the easiest thing, right? A lot of times they're not trying to be stealthy or anything. So they may just start dumping key vaults, try to access as many things as they can, and just try to enumerate through everything. So the enumeration is usually the thing that we see is most unusual. My follow-up question on that is, so 
coming back to my ignorance around service accounts or service principles, I understood the idea of machine identities and non-human identities when it came to like scheduling stuff. That sort of makes sense. But you talked about also, you know, in your example, like, oh, you're logging into a website. So can you just break that down a little bit further? So trying to sort of understand this service principle. So I'm me, I'm a human, and I'm going to go log into a website. Am I using my individual user account? I'm logging into the website. And then on the back end, instead of now going through some sort of flow as a user, I'm actually now sort of showing up as one of these service principles. Is that sort of how it works? Yes. So one of the cool things, so with the app registration in your tenant, you'll see the app registration. And then you'll see underneath that, we'll say, hey, it's redirect URL here. So you set this up to go basically sign into that website or that wiki. It could be a whole bunch of different things that people set these up for. A lot of the users will go sign into that. And then you'll go be able to see and several sign-in logs, M365D, and a bunch of other things. People go sign into that application. And depending on what the structure is of the app registration that goes with your service principle, that's down from there. It could either have delegated permissions. So that person, if you signed in there and you're the global admin of your entire org and delegated permissions are set up with the admin consent, then you've elevated your permissions. So now you have programmatic access to go do whatever's in the context of your account. But there's another permission that the app registration can have on it and will go down to your service principle when people sign into it. And that's called app. So if it's app, that basically means, oh, this app, the service principle itself can go do anything at once. If it's a delegated permission, then that service principle can't really do anything. But if it's app and you say something equivalent to global admin, like application read, write all or something like that, that service principle itself alone, without anybody logging into it, can go do anything in that scope. So yeah, I hope that answers. That was great. Thank you so much. And I think maybe my final sort of question just on this topic here is, how new is this concept of service principles? Have I just been living under a rock? Or would many people in the industry maybe not be super familiar with this concept or may just be thinking in the original sort of single dimension of non-human identities just for things like scheduling? So I think it, the concept of the service principle has been around for a while, but the service principle in terms of Azure, it's been around as well for a while here, but I would say really only more if developers are using these. As an incident responder, there's maybe not too many incidents that you've come across in your line of work yet. But as more and more customers and folks are going to Azure, this is something folks will definitely want to take a look at. These service principles, like I was talking about the app permissions, say you have on your service principle a client secret, which is a password. It's just a password. And let's say that that has app permissions at the highest in your org. If a developer or someone leaks that anywhere, you've essentially opened the door for someone to abuse that. And that could be the causeway for basically a major incident. So as things are getting a little more complicated, you probably use a service principle in your daily life pretty much every day. You might not notice it. Every single time you log into something, you're signing in, say, into Microsoft.com, Azure Portal, you're actually signing in to the service principle in an app that's hosted at Microsoft. All these things are usually behind the scenes. You might just not notice it so much. Emily, from a data science perspective, 
what are you building using to monitor or to observe and look for anomalies? Or is this something where there's a tool in Chris's side and then they get a bunch of data and then send it to you and go, what does this mean? Or are you proactively looking for things on your end? Yeah, so we're proactively looking at things and we're kind of building off what Chris alluded to earlier. So some of the ideas that he was giving about like enumerating or accessing new resources, you can think of broadly as like unexpected behavior. And so there would be kind of like two ways that we might want to try to look at that. One way would be maybe to profile a specific service principle and to say, okay, today, like its behavior deviates from the past. That's something that we might want to alert on. That actually like didn't turn out to be a fruitful approach in this case because service principles can be super erratic, really short-lived. And so the idea of like trying to profile based on the past history just wasn't panning out. And so we still wanted to take that same idea. But what we're doing instead is profiling service principles against their peers. And we're establishing peers by looking at like the volume of sign-ins associated with each of them. So there are some key features that we're grabbing out of some raw logs. So like how many different IP addresses did the service principal use? How many different resources did it access? How many different locations did it come from? Some of those sorts of things. And then when we bin these service principals into different groups based on that volume of sign-in log, we can see that behavior should be kind of roughly similar. And so we're using an anomaly detection method called local outlier factor as our first step, which is basically our super technical way of saying, does this service principle not look like its peers? And if it doesn't, then okay, we're going to flag that and take it to the next step in our detection process. Do you use, I know with other teams that I've spoken with, they use patterns from certain actors. Do you have those where you go, okay, we understand certain actors do a certain type of thing and they certain methodology. Does that come into play with all the analysis? Yeah, we are taking advantage of that same information. So I would say we don't have maybe like established tactics, techniques, procedures at the kind of level of data that I'm talking about, the features that I'm talking about using. But we have prior information on some things that we've seen that were particularly important and highly correlated with malicious activity. And so we are doing additional work on top of that local outlier factor to say, okay, we actually really care if you look unusual on these certain features, because these are the ones that we've seen that tie really closely to that malicious activity. Chris was talking earlier about like that enumeration behavior. So one of the things that we get in the sign-in logs is the result of that sign-in authentication attempt. And, you know, anything that's not a zero is some kind of error, but not all errors are the same. And so we saw that there was a special set of errors that we were seeing a lot more with this specific type of enumeration behavior. And so that's one of the things that we key in on. Staying on sort of like the data science challenge here, What's really unique about this problem when it comes to detecting the anomalies? Because I'm just sort of thinking about the way that Chris talked about service principles and how they work. And it feels like either they're sort of on some sort of schedule, which might either be known in advance, or you could sort of see those patterns quite clearly. Or if they're from a user, they're going to follow somewhat preset paths and or you know, if a user is doing it, maybe there's sort of a time, you know, you can sort of see the time intervals based on a human and the human brain and, you know, how quickly or slowly we do things. 
I'm trying to sort of like weave through this and, and, and try to work out like what makes this a unique challenge when it comes to anomaly detection versus sort of more simple rules that say like one action per, you know, 10 actions per second. And if it goes over this blocker, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think two of the obvious challenges we have, which like for me from a data science perspective, it's almost like it's not possible to not end up with these challenges because if we didn't have them, it wouldn't be a problem my team would look at. But that's volume and variety. So we have like 90,000 active service principles in our Kennet on a given day that generate like, I don't know, like 1 billion sign-in events. That's a lot. Or is that not a lot? Is that standard or is that a lot? To some extent, I almost think it's just like standard. It's like if we're not talking about volume at this level, it's kind of like, we don't need the advanced techniques we're using. So on my team, it's like expected. But this is also why Chris kind of comes to our team because some of the static things that they can do that can work are they're going to be narrowly scoped and they're not going to scale out to all of the Microsoft tenants. So there's that. And then on the variety perspective, like we have service principles who generate like a single successful sign-in and we might have like, 30,000 of those, for example. And then we'll have some other 10,000 that generate over 100,000 successful sign-ins in a given day. And so figuring out like, how will I decide that the service principal who generated 1,000 sign-ins today is unusual? And how will I decide that the service principal who generated a single sign-in is unusual is I say that's part of the big problem because to some extent can be easier if you just look for loud and noisy. And like Chris was saying, like we certainly see adversaries who just like fall into that bin. But it's also important that we catch the loud and noisy relative to what we expected to see. And so that's your lower volume stuff that can be more on the low and slow side that we care about, but we still have to figure out when that looks unusual. And I would say that that's part of what makes this problem difficult. And then from a more like literal perspective, it's also there's all this like multi-tenancy aspects going on with service principles as well, where I might see sign-ins for a service principle that doesn't actually belong in our tenant. And so, okay, so now I kind of know nothing about this. How do I get the right information to figure out what's going on with that service principle versus like a service principle that is from our tenant? I have so many other logs and information and context I can bring in to look for that as well. I mean, I think Chris could probably allude to some of the multi-tenancy things that are going on as well, but they certainly complicate the problem. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> yeah, I think so. the multi-tenant thing is kind of like one of the biggest challenges. And that's something that me and Emily are actually working on right now, is improving some detections for there. And so if we go back a little bit, I was talking about earlier, there's this app registration. This app registration, it's basically in one tenant that you create this. But then if you go select when you're making that app registration, there's going to be an option. It's going to say multi-tenant. If you go collect that, then other tenants can go add the service principles, add a service principle based off of what you said in there. Basically, think of it as a blueprint for your house. And then your service principle looks at that blueprint for the app registration here and says, okay, how should I build my house here? And then you can go customize it down the line. And so that service principle, you could even add like 
your own creds to that service principle. So now it could have its own cred in this tenant that's downstream. And so one of the things definitely to make sure when you're looking at some of these in your tenant here, is are your app registrations home to your tenant or did you select multi-tenant here? Because whatever you said in that blueprint is what you're allowing these other tenants to do. So a service principle in another tenant could be a challenge for us in monitoring too, because we might not have necessarily control over what necessarily has been done in there. So you have to kind of architect your app in a way that you're like, okay, this is what I wanted to go access or somebody in another tenant. So that's one of our big challenges across tenants. And, you know, at Microsoft, we have tons of tenants here too. So these are challenges that we're having, and especially as other things like Azure Lighthouse and all these things are coming on board. Multi-tenanted monitoring is definitely a big challenge that we're having here as well. Is this challenge a human problem? Meaning like it's not configured, like, you know, we need to get out there and evangelize. This is what we need to all do. Or is it just is, you know, is this something that can be fixed or improved where things are configured a certain way across the board? Would that be a helpful step? Yeah, so definitely some things are like we could fix it by a process or like going through developer training and teaching folks like, hey, this is how you should be building this. For sure, there's a lot of things like that, right? Like selecting multi-tenant versus my home tenant. That's just like a pretty quick way to restrict down what you're at. Like the API permissions and all these other things, making sure that you set up the app in a way that it's using least privilege, something as well, and saying, what can I access? Maybe you want it to go access like a storage blob, your app or something like that, or to go a website. That makes sense. But should it go access key vaults or things like that? So... It's part human and part something that we're living with right now. But kind of taking a look at like these different logs that we have from Sentinel and kind of investigating in these different ways, we can kind of help remediate these issues when they come up. I would just say I think it's both. And I think Chris touched on exactly what I would say is the human element, which is basically like we need to follow better least privilege examples. And I think part of the problem there is just like not fully understanding like what do these different permission levels need and what do I actually need to assign based on what the search principle needs to do. And if it needs to do something outside of that scope, should I just be tacking on permissions to the same one or should I be building a new service principle for that? I think I liken this too when you're using any kind of app and it pops up and says, can we track you? And I can see most people just being like, yes, just go away without fully understanding what that means. So I could see that like, okay, we just want to make this work. We don't know what all this means. Okay, it's working great, but you have no idea what you opened on the back end or allowed. And so that's great when you're obviously developing a new app where you're in the process of writing code. What should security folks do to understand where they may have a significant volume of service principles active in their tenants, active in their clouds, and where they are you know, configured for multi-tenant. And so therefore they have these sort of additional factors they need to think of. Like how do you go about and sort of assess the potential sort of risk and exposure here? Is there either tools to do that or is it about sort of going and speaking with your engineers and your devs and asking them to open up their code and look what's going on the back end? Yes, so there's a couple of things. For these apps, when you're building them, the app registration, you're going to go say, hey, I want to go get this API permission. Those are broken down into ones that are pretty low risk and anybody can add those onto their app. And then there's ones that are like application read, write all. And application read, write all says, hey, I can go write any permission to any other app. 
and basically I'm becoming God. So those ones need a global admin or somebody pretty high to go consent to them. So no regular user in your tenant should have that permission to go do that. In our process, we have to go through a review process to go say like, hey, we have to go add this. And customers should be doing that as well, basically. High permissions should not be added to their apps just as they are. And one of these multi-tenant apps, say it's coming from another tenant, a global admin or someone pretty high permission has to add those to your tenant as well. So if you're concerned like, hey, someone just added this super high permission app to my tenant, a global admin has to actually go add that as well. So from the permission side, you should go through a review process like that so no one could just add whatever they want to their app. But the second thing is, if you want to kind of understand the lay of the land and understand how things are connected, what do I have in my environment? You can dump a lot of that from Graph too as well. And we're logging all that on our side as well. So we can see like, hey, this is connected to here. This app may be using permissions from here and this is what it has. So we can kind of build out more of like a threat map that says, hey, this is what I could pivot into and this is what I could do. Yeah, I will say the specific problem of a service principal adding creds that it like shouldn't be doing is actually like one of my current projects that we're looking for malicious behavior from service principals doing that. And so all of those activities do actually get logged as well. So that's something that you can also kind of sort through and look for as well and start contacting app owners like, hey, are you aware that this is happening? Is this expected behavior? So you can do a little bit of that as well. In your Blue Hat talk, um, you touched on nation-state adversaries targeting these type of accounts. Emily, can you give us a little bit more information about that for the listeners? Well, I would just say to what Chris was alluding to earlier, we are finding that these are like a new and kind of like emerging target of interest for advanced adversaries in our network. And so I would say just like how we previously were concerned about like service accounts and other non-human accounts, the reason that we need to start caring about service principles is for a lot of the same old reasons too. So these types of accounts are not under like the same policies and restrictions that your standard user accounts are. And to kind of what we've been talking to before, there can be all sorts of different places where you have to go look to find different aspects of activity. And so that can make it difficult to track from a cohesive perspective. So we are seeing that these types of accounts are being targeted by advanced adversaries. We expect this to continue we're not ever shifting away from the cloud, right? It's only that we're shifting more and more to it and more of the apps and services and things that we are building are going to live entirely in that space. And so we're just going to have more activity from these types of accounts. And so that's why we kind of thought that this talk was especially relevant right now too, because we see this as an area that's only going to get increasingly important. So just, I mean, I think, there's a MITRE technique for, I don't know if it's just like standard accounts or something like that. But basically, if you don't have to create an account to go do something, you can just leverage an account that already has permissions to go do things. Of course, you will always do that. And so more and more, that's what we're going to care about from the service principle side is existing over permissions, service principles get compromised, and then they have too much access to, to go do a lot of things in your environment. I can kind of touch on that as well. So one of the big reasons actors are targeting these now is because service principles, I was saying there's just a service principle that's like, you can have a password with it. You can go sign from a lot of different locations here. 
as Brett and some other folks have said, identity is really the perimeter. Now, you can't really think of like, hey, I got my network here, and then these are only the people that can go access things, right? So you can compromise one of these service principles here, and you can go access a bunch of resources just with the identity. But a different way that actors can use it is system-managed identity associated with the resource itself. So if you have a VM or something like that, the, a sub kind of piece of a service principle is a managed identity, and that's associated just with a resource. So if the actor got on the resource, they become that identity and the tenant. And because of that, now they're in. So say an actor compromises a vulnerable box or something like that. They get on there. Just being simply on that box is all you have to be to be that identity and your Azure tenant. So this is why it's one of the big areas of concern, definitely from the identity plane. Service principles can do a lot too here. And they were saying like they're the backbone of a lot of different things. So a service principle can go access like SharePoint, it can go access your Azure DevOps, it can go access your Azure resources. You could have it be permission to be global admin as like regular user roles. But you can see like this could really blow up a lot bigger depending on how things are configured. We pretty much have covered the basis of your talk without being explicit by saying this is what we spoke about. But is there anything we missed? Are there any points in your talk that you would like to convey here that are something that we have not touched on yet? One of the key themes in my portion of the talk was basically don't expect like one technique to get you all the way there from a detection perspective. So it's important as you're thinking about like, how am I going to see this kinds of behavior is that you think about layering different things. And we're using a bunch of different approaches in our detection, basically, to keep funneling down from anomalous to like actually malicious. Because if those two things were synonymous, if they were actually equal, like our job as data scientists would be so easy because we have really well-developed anomaly detection techniques. And if we could just apply one and it would solve the problem, then we would be making leaps and strides in detection every single day. But that's really not the case. And so you have to figure out what is going to further distinguish anomalous from malicious and how do I apply these things together? How do I layer them on top of each other in order to go from this huge sea of data, which inevitably everyone is starting with, to actually flagging what you need an analyst to go look at in your environment? So once an analyst is going to look at this, is that the step that determines if this is just noise or, you know, it was false alarm, or if this is actually something that we need to take action on? Is that the step? Yeah, that's exactly the step. And there needs to be a loop there as well, too. So this is another really critical element of the partnership that Chris and I have, too, is um, when he goes to go look at something, he's always telling me what he did to actually do that and then what the ultimate outcomes were. And then it's my job to extrapolate from there, like the bigger themes or patterns that I can use to continue to improve the results that I send back to him the next day to go look at. So if you determine that it is, in fact, malicious in some way, what's the next step at that point? Would it get passed off to someone else? Chris, Chris will handle that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So depending on what happened, right? A cred leak may be the most common. So depending on what the actor's goal is here, maybe they're just simply looking for information. Maybe they're looking for code. Depending on what it is, I may go start my investigation in one of these different areas. But usually the first thing that I'll go do is in the enterprise app, 
that's actually your service principle and your tenant, you can go underneath there and say, disable sign-ins. So as soon as you do that, you cut the access. It's a little different though for managed identities. So if a managed identity, again, that's a kind of like a subsection of service principles, if those get compromised, how fixing those work is essentially, you wanna go figure out when the actor first got access to the machine and resource. If it's a subscription and they have a user assigned managed identity, that's a little different, but if we'll say it's a VM. You take a VM and say they compromise it through some sort of exploit on the box, you could just revert back to when they weren't on the box. And then after they've been evicted from that box, because the token is short-lived on a managed identity, you don't have to do anything else. So as soon as you get them off the box or the resource, that's it. With a regular service principle, you can go to stable sign-ins and then you can go to Sentinel and you can say, oh, okay, I see this guy is coming from this IP. You can actually see the thumbprint of the certificate used. So you can see where they all pivoted to and you can see a unique identifier if they use a client secret, which is like a password. So you can see, hey, they signed in here with this client secret. So you could just remove that. And then you could go look up the first couple strings of it too, to see like, hey, was it leaked in code maybe? Was it on SharePoint or something else that's out there? So you could go kind of clean up things from there. This feels like it would be so satisfying once you get to that point. Like, yes, <laughs> just once you piece it all together, like, yes, we were right. Okay, now we did all these things. I could see that just being like such a good day or week or however long that process takes. But it makes me excited for you. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely nice once we could say that we've evicted the actor and we could say things are kind of closing up a little bit more. Yeah, put your cape on. Like, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> and is this a challenge or a set of challenges that are unique to Azure and sort of the Microsoft stack? Or is what we're talking about here more ubiquitous across other platforms, across other vendors, across other clouds? So the concept of the service principle and how it works in Azure is pretty unique to Azure. I honestly haven't explored way too much Azure or AWS and how they do things there, but I assume there's something similar there. I, I honestly don't know too much. Emily, I see you nodding. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I have to imagine there's some sort of parallel, but how it is like manifest in other cloud environments, like I can't speak to exactly, but I don't see how we would be getting away from this concept of like you have applications that have permissions and the applications like go do things on your behalf and you sign into the application. So I don't see a way that other cloud offerings would sidestep, but whether or not it gets manifested in the same way that we have service principles here, I have no idea. No, that's fine. And obviously, you know, you guys aren't expected to be experts on every single cloud and every single technology <laughs> stack. And that high level focus on being aware in your apps when you are granting multi-tenancy permissions, when you are using non-human identities and, you know, just what that risk and exposure looks like. That's obviously global guidance across the industry and, and you know, regardless of which cloud or, or tech stack you're on. We're coming up on time. So final sort of follow-up questions here. One is, Folks want to learn more about this, either they are a developer and a software engineer and they want to make sure they're applying best practices or they are in the sort of detection and response space on the security side. Any places we can point folks to to learn more about this? I heard you talk about MITRE a couple of times. So is MITRE one place to go and sort of read up more about these sorts of attacks? Do we have any sort of Microsoft resources we can connect folks with? 
If you want to know more about like the generic threat of valid accounts, because I remembered that that's the correct name, you can definitely go check out the attack framework and they'll have examples and citations there of things that have been tracked in the wild associated with other threat intel reporting. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think there will be anything specific about service principles that you can find from there. But certainly, as we've highlighted previously, this like general concept of being aware of what's happening with your non-human accounts is universal across different platforms and things like that as well. Chris, maybe you're more familiar with some Microsoft-specific resources, though. Yeah, so we have a lot of great documentation on like how service principles work, setting up your applications. There's some best practices on multi-tenant, using different credentials, using managed identities. So I don't have like a link or anything, but there is some open source documentation on that. And more for defenders, maybe not as well published, but AVIP is a great tool that can help you identify things like cred leaks, unusual sign-ins and stuff like that. Emily and myself, we're actually working with their team as well to kind of help bolster some of the detections there. And for defenders that are trying to look at how do I investigate from some of my logs, Sentinel sign-in logs, Sentinel SPN sign-in logs will help you tell some of that, tell you the creds used, where it's signed in. Cloud app events will tell you the Azure resources. And there is AD sign-in events beta that will help you also understand sign-ins from there. So kind of across those two things, like understanding how it's set up and some of the logs to investigate will be really good to help. And we'll grab some of those links from you after we finish recording here. We'll put them in the show notes. And then obviously folks can go and watch on demand the video recording from this session up on the Blue Hat YouTube channel. Well, I think that sort of brings us to the end of this episode. And thank you so much for your time. I think before we let you go, are there any places on the intertubes that folks can find you? Do you like to go hang out in uh, particular social media places or Discord channels? And do you have blogs? Do you want people to reach out? What should people know about each of you, Emily and Chris? Emily? I'm available on LinkedIn if you want to connect with me there. I can't promise to be uh, super active, <laughs> but I usually am good about posting about anything that I'm sharing or speaking at or anything like that. So that would be a good place to start. Yeah, I would say LinkedIn as well. Honestly, I'm not way too active and I don't think many other people on Artsock or on the other channels. But yeah, definitely reach out on LinkedIn if you want to learn more uh, or you have any questions. What's the red P on the hat that you're wearing, Chris? Is it Pirates? Padres? Who is that? Oh, that's Phillies. I'm from Philly originally and I moved out here to Redmond. So I'm actually in the Seadock today here. Uh, So I'm a bad citizen. I don't know who the Phillies are. Are they baseball? baseball. Oh, that's baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just went to the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> oh, where they lost to Texas. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Maybe they had too many cheesesteaks before the game. Is that an acceptable yeah. <laughs> trope for me to bring up in a, in a podcast? Uh, <laughs> it is from my yeah. end. Commiserations <laughs> to Chris and the Phillies. I wasn't trying to give you... I wasn't trying to have a dig at you and your team. I'm sorry. That's just all I know about Oh, the team you love. Didn't they lose? I'm so yeah. sorry. Well, hey, I, 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 I'm in Seattle and the Mariners, I don't think you've been to the World Series for nigh on 200 years. So you're well ahead of us. <laughs> All right, Emily and Chris, thank you so much for joining us. And I learned a lot and I know that the audience is going to come out of this with at least knowing not to give everyone global admin access to all Hey, if if we could actually truly get that message across I think this would be a great victory so yeah should we get some t-shirts made 
<laughs> thank you very much. We appreciate you being here. And thank you, everyone who's listening. Thanks for joining the Blue Hat podcast. Thank you guys for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat@microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at msftbluehat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.